I hope you picked up this week's playbill. Uh, you understand we're treating Job as if it's theater, as if it's a drama. It is a story that is told to us in a way in which there have been dramatic interpretations of it, and it's not unusual for us to uh, step out into that lane and to understand the theater of Job. We're in Act 3. As, the, uh, as it says here, the curtain rises for Act 3. Um, and you get, you get where we've been on the left panel on the inside, a synopsis of the, the arc of the dramatic arc of Job. And then on the right you get a synopsis, a summary of Act 3. You know, when I think about the Bible, there, in truth, there are not that many times in which God speaks. Lots of words, lots of conversation going on, lots of times in which people speak for God, but for God to actually step up and to say whatever it is that God has to say is really rather rare. We have God's actions, and then we have the reflection that human beings have made out of those actions, of how they interpret the activity of what they ascribe to God, of what they assign to God. God did this, and let me tell you about that is typically the way it goes. In Genesis 1, you have God speaking. God speaks the world into creation. Day 1, day 2, day 3. God speaks these things into action. Then over in the New Testament, you have the Mount of Transfiguration. And the the disciples are there with Jesus on the Mount, and these mysterious figures from Hebrew history of the Law and the Prophets, Moses and Elijah show up, and God finally interrupts and says, stop talking. He's talking to the disciples. Stop talking and listen to what this man says to you. So this holy interruption. And then in this great text, we have the uh, title of the sermon is The Divine Speech. Finally, in the midst of everything that has taken place, God speaks an answer. Let's read the scripture. And now, finally, this is how it might be said today, and now, finally, God answered Job from the eye of the violent storm. And God said this, Why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? That could be said to almost every one of us. Pull yourself together, Job, Up on your feet, stand tall. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How was its foundation poured, and who set the cornerstone? While the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise. Then we jump over a few verses and come to a series of of questions. Can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of the lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? Who do you think gave weather wisdom to the ibis and storm savvy to the rooster? 
Does anyone know enough to number all the clouds or tip over the rain barrels of heaven? When the earth is cracked and dry, the ground baked hard as a brick. Can you teach the lioness to stalk her prey and satisfy the appetite of her cubs as they crouch in the den, waiting hungrily in their cave? And who sets out food for the ravens when their young cry to God, fluttering about because they have no food? Wow. Nearly a decade ago, a tornado flattened Moore, Oklahoma. It left 24 dead and demolished 12,000 homes in a community of 41,000 people. Who was untouched in Moore, Oklahoma with that scale of devastation? Perhaps this church, like the one I was pastoring in Kansas City, responded to that. Our youth group led the way. They altered their mission trip for the summer in order to go down to Moore in the weeks that followed, just like we did in Joplin. We had other groups, adult and young adult groups, who went down and they did their volunteering. I'm sure this church did the very same thing in those cases. Both storms were startling, beyond what we could imagine. When you go boots on the ground in a community that's been hit like that, you understand that the level of destruction that goes on. Whole blocks of homes were destroyed completely as if a giant monster had stepped on these houses. All of these homes just stomped away and and leveled them. In the days following the Joplin tornado, this is my first real up-close experience with a tornado. I researched the storm's damage from my home in Kansas City and I was doing research research in order to write an article for one of our Baptist publications about how Baptists had been involved in renewal efforts, in emergency efforts. I wanted to write about that so that other Baptists around the country could know what churches had been doing. I came across a factoid in the Joplin uh, hurricane, uh, tornado, I'm sorry, that 18,000 vehicles had been destroyed in this one storm. I did the research, I kept researching, I kept writing, and I went to bed troubled by this number of 18,000 cars and trucks. I'd written it in the report. I had a draft of it already prepared. 18,000, I went to bed and I couldn't get that number out of my brain. In the middle of the night, I got tired of wrestling with this, the scale of this number, because I was thinking surely it was 1,800 and I accidentally added a zero on the end of it. I mean, that's a lot of cars and trucks, 1,800 of them are. I was so troubled I couldn't sleep and so I got back up and I went back to my computer and I went back to some other sources, some new sources, And I finally found the State Department of Insurance, and they confirmed 18,000 cars and trucks were destroyed in Joplin. That storm ran through the middle of town, and it was one mile wide, and it was seven miles long, and it was as if it had been scraped completely uh, clear. You know, our minds aren't built for this kind of damage to wrap our thoughts around the size and scales of these 
storms, whether they be the forest fires in California that we get a very myopic look at. We see this, we don't see that. Or maybe it's the hurricanes that run up and down our coastal regions or earthquakes in Haiti or tornadoes across the Midwest. We really aren't built to handle, to take in that kind of information and to really assimilate it and understand it. And perhaps this is helpful because it helps us consider the natural disasters as the type of calamity that Job experienced. We read the story as Job is being manipulated by God and the others in sort of a, I don't know, sort of a private little discussion that they're having, and Job happens to be the plaything. We, we interpret the story that way, and we don't do a really good job of interpreting what happened to his family uh, as being a part of the natural order of things. Things just happen, and we're left wondering what they mean. This is the pendulum that swings in our thinking. An event happens, and the pendulum will swing over here, and we do the reflection of it. Something happens in life, and we swing back and forth between event and reflection, and it's the reflection that it keeps us up at night. Writer Rodney Clapp uh, for the Christian Century speculates that the best answer to these theological speculations is that we might explain them through the kindnesses that are shown to the victims. Maybe not so much about the damage itself, but in what way is the human family, the human community prompted to act in return? Only then, he he explains, do these mysteries find meaning. I sort of like that. It adds meaning to what we do in response to what happens in other communities, or maybe our own. Maybe a cup of cool water is our lifeline to our dilemma of sitting with the unanswerable question of why. Why did this happen? After suffering and much crying out to God, only then, only then, after everything has happened, does the voice come out of the whirlwind. A voice coming out of the wind. As the wind is howling, God is answering by posing God's own answers to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Saying more than what you know is the way I describe it. We're pretty guilty of doing that often. We say more than what we know. Gird up your loins like a man, God says. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Stop asking me questions. I have a few questions of my own, God says. And God answers Job by asking his own questions. They're troublesome questions. They're not answerable, don't you know? They're tough, tough questions. God's answer is a declaration that God alone is God. God alone set the foundations of the earth, laid all of its measurements out, fashioned clouds like garments, and damned the sea's mighty waves. You know, in some ways, to this point, the story of Job is like an old-time silent movie, black and white. There's action, 
maybe there's a script that's being added at the bottom of each scene uh, so that we might have some understanding about the story and about character development. There's been betrayal and disappointment and the suspense of Job's faithful grasp on God's providence. Job has been as faithful as one might ever hope to be. And all of this in silence until suddenly the slumbering God awakens and utters in perfect poetry what the divine has kept silent to this point. God speaks. I got that line from Garbo speaks, don't you know? Finally, in the move from silent movies to the movies with a soundtrack, Garbo spoke. And so in this case, we have God speaking. At long last, the divine breaks the painful silence. And the silence has been all of this action, all of these questions, and all of these conversations being posed as if their mouths are moving and their lips are moving. And maybe we can read what they're saying but in essence, it's just been silence in, in the scale of what the questions are about. And finally, after unloading on God with defiant anger about the injustice guiding the sequence of bad luck, which is it? Is it providence? Is it God acting? Or is it just bad luck? That's a great question. If you're a Cormac McCarthy fan, this is his question about luck and fate and good luck and bad luck and good fate and bad fate. It's the natural order of things. These are just things that happens. And finally, God responds. In the book, How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, don't you love that title, John Dominic Crossan famously described the book of Job as but a speed bump on the Deuteronomistic superhighway by which, here's what he means by that, that the readers of the Bible in general have overemphasized the connection between what we do and what we suffer. This is last week's sermon, that connection between this and that, and it's all hardwired together. If you act poorly, you will receive the punishment for that. And if you act good, if you act well, my college-educated daughter would say, Dad, it's not good, it's well. To which I said, uh, that's a waste of a good education. And she said, yours or mine. <laughs> Don't you love a 20-something? So in this book, uh, John Dominic Crossan is challenging that. And he points to what Hosea eventually says. Those who sow the wind reap the whirlwind. You know, there's a time where we do reap what we sow. It does happen. They're not disconnected, as in the story about the prisoner who was working with needle and thread in the cell, and his cellmate said, so here you are, sowing. To which he didn't lift his head. He just said, no, I'm reaping. Okay, it's kind of cute if you think about it, sowing, reaping. Sometimes we do reap what we sow. But the book of Job reminds us that life is much more complicated than that. There are times where it's just so confusing to know, to piece together the cause and the effect, and it, you know, to do the reflecting that asks the question, how and why did this happen? 
The problem of evil cannot be reduced to pious phrases and proverbs. Nothing is that simple in life. We, we have all the proverbs. We have all the, we have all the pious uh, responses you could ever hope for. But when you get down into, in, into the uh, soil itself, you, you must ask a different set of questions. Doing good doesn't always make that much difference in life. That's a little shock, but it's truthful. This lesson, one of the best-known passages in Job, is the beginning of the Lord's response to Job. And taken by itself, it may be heard as a rich and powerful statement about God, about the created order and human existence. It's possible to read these statements in isolation from the context of Job's pitiful life. He truly has a pitiful life at this stage. And if separated from Job's sequential tragedies, you know, those things that happen in such a quick flurry, how could, how could life turn on someone so quickly and so badly? And then altogether turn and have an affirmation of faith. The morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. In the midst of all of these tragedies, God has not lost hope about how we might respond. These middle passages I mentioned last week in Job are written in poetry. And they carry the weight of the toughest questions in human existence. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? This is a Hebrew question. Hebrew philosophy takes this up toys with it because it's so tantalizing. Hebrew philosophy, which if you don't read the Old Testament, you don't get much of a taste of because of the philosophical nature of having deep questions and having troublesome answers. In the church and especially in the Reformation tradition, we have often been likened to people in court. We use that metaphor a lot in New Testament. We use it a lot in, in Christian theology. Um, you're charged with a crime, you're facing capital punishment. We, you know, in the New Testament, we talk about that, that you're facing heaven or hell. But you're eventually acquitted or pardoned by the judge. This is pretty stock New Testament theology that the judge intervenes in your, your, your interest. So it's, so here it is in Job, the roles of the image of the court are somewhat turned around. Job wishes to go to court. He yearns to be able to lay his case before God because he's confident that he would be acquitted by God. He wants to get up in front of God the judge and ask his questions and defend his life. And he's, he's sure that God will acquit him would say, oh, what a, what a tragic mistake we've made in your life. His problem is that a just court cannot be found. He searches and scouts in all four directions of the compass, this story tells us, but the court and its judge are nowhere to be found. The court that he wants to go to doesn't exist. And yet he continues to throw his questions in the aftermath of the whirlwind, and whether your whirlwind is, 
is a tornado or hurricane or a pandemic, prayer challenges our wish to pray the right prayer and the right response to those crises. We pray thanksgiving for those who are untouched. But what about those who were struck and, and died? A prayer for thanksgiving is not always the first prayer that should be uttered. In other words, a one-size-fits-all prayer doesn't work. Perhaps we, think about, we should think about the plurality of prayers that we need to have, almost as if we have a, you know, a pocketbook full of prayers for all different kinds of needs. For those who were spared, we say thanks to God. To those whose homes have been destroyed and lives were lost, we offer prayers of sorrow and intercession for the dead. We say a good word on behalf of those who have died. We ask God to show us, the survivors, what we should do. And this is the true nature of prayer, that when we risk praying to God, we are risking that God might invite us to be involved in answering the very prayer that we're offering. That God says, yes, I would love for you to help me answer that prayer. We don't just take God our requests and dump them in in the inbox that God has. We open ourselves up to the possibility that God is saying something to us in our own words, in our own prayers about being involved. Only particular prayers, tailored for the need, will do. Except there is one all-encompassing prayer, and it was in one of the hymns that we sang this morning, the eschatological prayer of Jesus, that ultimately all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. So we go to the model prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the model prayer that we can take and we can seek to live out to understand that all things be done on earth as they are in heaven. That will is first and finally a loving and a benevolent will, one set on restoring and healing all of creation. Creation will groan in travail, and loved ones separated by death will be restored to one another to their families, thy will be done on earth as they are in heaven. Thank you, O God, that we have been here to think together with the life of Job. As we go from this place, may we think deeply and believe faithfully and hopefully. Amen.